I feel so much more in control of my business and I feel that I'm a healthier person. I think my family are healthier because I'm healthier. Alice, my wife, is much more involved in the business than she wasn't before and that's just brought a huge dimension uh, to, to what we're doing. And I believe that the, the people that we have working on the farm are healthier as well because of the system that we're doing. The impact of regenerative farming extends beyond the benefit to the soils and biodiversity, according to organic stalwarts John Pawsey. In this week's Over the Farmgate podcast, we're back for our monthly chat with regenerative farmers. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every week, so make sure you're subscribed on your favourite platform. Jess Fredenberg has been catching up with two farmers implementing regenerative techniques on farm. Hello everyone, I'm Jess Fredenberg and we've got a fascinating discussion for you today between two farmers who are very much on the regenerative path but at different stages. They are Rich Thomas from Herefordshire who has been introducing agroecological practices for about five or six years and John Pawsey from Suffolk who, as Rich said before we started recording, is a bit of a rock star in the organic world and has been organic and following a systems approach for 20 odd years. John, could you please give us a little rundown of your farm? Um, What have you got on it right now? And what are your primary, what's your system? Okay, so at the moment, uh, we, we've got a six-year rotation on the farm, which includes two-year lays, which we run our uh, thousand New Zealand Romneys over that. Um, and then we have a range of crops. We have four years of cash cropping after that, which uh, are mainly based around cereals, but also legumes as well. So uh, we can sort of extend our rotation by using legumes. But it's a, it's a big sort of diverse uh, mix of cropping uh, these days uh, and we're sort of very into uh, growing we're trying to make our system it's niche anyway but we want to make it more niche nice okay and rich what about you can you tell us a bit about your farm so yeah we're here in north herefordshire and uh, we've got pedigree herefords which is dad's thing dad's 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 sort of life's work really breeding um his horned horned herefords we've got about 50, 55 cows, which we're trying to increase numbers, but TB is a perennial problem, as we probably all know. And then we've got about 300 Romney cross ewes, um, all lamb outside in April, uh, 30 acres of apple orchards, sort of old style, tall standard orchards, all grazed underneath, uh, a little bit of woodland and a little bit of arable. Uh, and stewardship, we're in higher tier and, and, and mid tier stewardship. Um, so we, we're not organic, but we're kind of all, 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 almost. Nice, thank you. So yeah, you're both you're both running very mixed <laughs> mixed systems, which is interesting. Um, John, I want to come to you. You've you've obviously been uh, you've been organic for a, a long time, isn't it? Is it over twenty five years? Is that right? It's uh, we started conversion in nineteen ninety nine, so just under twenty five years. Yeah. Yeah, twenty five years. Okay, so can you can you sort of tell us a little bit about how your how your farm has changed in that time, you know, how your landscape has changed, how the biodiversity has changed, the business, the operations. Because I, I imagine it, you know, it's been a gradual sort of process, hasn't it, towards more and more uh, agroecological sort of practices. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of sort of unintended consequences but of, of, of our change. Um, because when we first converted in 1999, it was really all about actually the, the, you know, we weren't making any money out of uh, conventional farming. 
Um, and so I knew we had to do something. So it was a diversification project, really. So we converted um, uh, about 125 hectares, uh, a part of our uh, 650 hectare farm, um, into organic as a diversification project. But my, I was always interested in soils, um, always really interested in nature on the farm. I was a former... Um, chair of Suffolk FWAG, Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group. So, um, and and so the so the, the the thought of going into a system that might increase nature on the farm actually sort of fitted um, with my sort of ethos. Anyway, um, how's the farm changed? Well, in so so many ways, um, uh, we've increased our soil organic matter by by uh, by hundred percent. We've gone from two point nine to five point five percent. We've actually hit a bit of a plateau there. But as far as sort of increase in bird numbers, uh, a huge dramatic increase in bird numbers, and not just breeding bird numbers, but overwintering birds as well, um, which I put down for, for, for to system change. I don't think it's necessarily all about organic, but it's bringing back. Uh, more overwinter stubbles, undersown lays into the um, system, which has definitely helped helped uh, bird numbers. Um, but we do lots of surveys um, every year. We do a different survey every year, and we repeat them in five yearly patterns to try and get some kind of handle on how nature is changing on our farms. Um, and it's all going in a positive direction. And I, ju- I think it is. I think it is down to partly because we're organic uh, and we're not using any pesticides but partly because of a mixed farming system and a, and, a, and a sort of a much more sort of systems-based diverse approach to our cropping system. So, I mean, that's how the farm's changed. As far as um, people on the farm and myself and my family, even though, you know, farming in a, in a different way, um, you know, has its challenges. And in, in fact, funnily enough, it, it's, it's, it's more management time. But, it, but it's all creative time. It's all time, rather than, you know, me receiving instructions from my agronomist every week, and I used to do all the spraying on the farm, and, um, and, and feeling that I was a, a, a slave to this bloody Bateman sprayer, sorry, but I really, you know, it was just a nightmare. I feel so much more in control of my business, and I feel that I'm a healthier person. I think my family are healthier because I'm healthier Alice, my wife, is much more involved in the business as she wasn't before, and that's just brought a huge dimension uh, to to what we're doing. And I believe that the the people that we have working on the farm are healthier as well because of the system that we're doing. Um, so, yeah, massive, massive. I think also, sorry, very briefly, is that we, we also put a huge amount of importance on people who work directly with us, but also people connected to our business. Uh, the value we put in people now is probably one of our sort of main drivers to, uh, as far as the sort of the management of the system is kind of, is valuing people. It's really interesting. And I've got so many questions off, off the back of that. Um, and But I think it's, you know, what's coming through strongly is this, this very sort of rounded type of business actually isn't it and and it's and it's healthy it's it's healthy for you it's healthy for your employees for your family um and it sounds like all the wildlife is really you know benefiting a lot as well from that um rich when i come to you how does it i guess how does it make you feel listening to to john talk about that because uh you're more sort of at the beginning of your career aren't you and uh you've been making some changes on your farm in the last few years how are you kind of viewing what what John's doing does it kind of make you think you want to do more or 100% you can't even tell you how much like 
if I was doing, if I'd started, like I started sort of, well, you could say, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, use the word, it's a journey, isn't it? So probably started like five, six years ago, and then maybe two, three or four years ago, we were doing more stuff and, 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 and more stuff now. And, and the more you do, the more you know that you can do. And then you start to see the whole farm as an ecosystem and the whole thing working together. But, but um, if I'd started when I finished college, uh, or university. If I'd have learned the things that I learned in the intermediary sort of 10 or 15 years there, and I'm not blaming them because production agriculture, it was, but it's still pretty, you know, the mainstream way of thinking, isn't it? But if I'd have learned, if I'd have started that then, oh, we'd be flying now, absolutely flying. But, we're, you know, we're 20, 20 years behind, I'm 43, and I've got 20-something years until I have to pack up and retire. But, um, uh, yeah, once you can start to see the system working, like you, you, you can find so many little um, things to sort of make the point. But f we used to use poron on the cattle for fly treatment, you know, to keep, keep the flies off, stop them getting pink eye. But once we started rotationally grazing the cattle, moving on one to two day moves, they're not near the flies and the hatching because because their their cow pats are two or three days behind or four days or whatever it is, and actually. Um, you start grazing taller grass, you have more insects, you have more spiders, and the spiders are a really apex predator. They might be really small, but they're really, you know, they're really high up on the food, food chain. Then you've got things like dragonflies, which I only discovered a couple of years ago, are, are very similar. And so you've got those insects, you've got bats, although I'm not quite sure how much the bats do in terms of eating flies. And then you've got things like, obviously, swallows and all those other small birds. And they were taking the place of the fly treatment. And, and I got a <clears throat> excuse me, a great story, uh, sort of small story. We moved some cattle into a into a, a, a hectare patch back in October last year, and it must have been the last day that the swallows were around before they flew south for winter. And you, you literally moved the cattle in. The flies got up. You could see the flies and the swallows. They, we lost count of like 150. They were everywhere, and they were all sat on the, the electric wires and sweeping around. And 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 so we hadn't had to get them in. We hadn't had to buy any chemical any any product to put on them we hadn't had to spend the time doing that and nature was doing it for us i know it's, it, i know it sounds all like fluffy and nice but actually when you can when you can look at it and there's an economic gain and there's a nicety to it why would you not do that mm. because like it pays you know what i mean and, and it's great for the whole ecosystem and then and then obviously it's like a snowball and once it starts rolling and it gathers it gathers uh, steam and, and it starts getting bigger, you, you can't stop it. You can't you can't close the box once you've opened it. Once you've seen stuff like that. I, I really I really love what you're both saying. And um, well, we're, we're recording this over Zoom, and so we can see each other on the screen. And I can I can see like how excited you are talking about this, and it's just lovely to to see that. You know, I mean, do you think that? Um, uh, farming in this way and like seeing your farm differently like you said rich as an ecosystem and you you start to sort of understand it better don't you all these little intricacies does it make you kind of in, enjoy what you do more De definitely well john john i mean john said about being a slave to the bateman sprayer and i think it was two or perhaps three years ago the guy in somewhere in the eastern counties i think a guy called david miller was doing the ahdb podcast and he said I think it was him that said it on, on there that um, he was spraying and a hare ran under the boom, went to the headland and started licking its paws. And he said that made him really sad. He almost stopped and think, hang on a minute, what on earth am I doing? This product I'm using has got a label on it which says it's harmful and all the rest of it. And we know why we use that and that I'm not, I'm not railing completely against 
what we now call conventional agriculture into agriculture. We know why we do that, and there's a reason, and, and the, the change will come. And it, what the speed of that change is, is, is another conversation altogether. But, but like, I don't want to be the guy sat on that sprayer, which I guess is probably what John was saying earlier on. It does, you know, it, not doing that stuff makes you feel good. Mm. I, I, I completely agree. In fact, um, I think a lot of us have come up with that story, and certainly the hair story is is, is my experience. Um, and, uh, and and I remember the feel that I was doing it on. It was for the first time that I, because, you know, we're so busy doing what we're doing, and especially in a, in, I found in a conventional system where I was just getting these constant instructions of what I was supposed to be doing on the farm to, to, to allow my farm to get to harvest with any kind of yield, is that I, I think that as... As farmers, we have de-skilled ourselves. We've actually handed over most of the decisions that we used to make to somebody else because they're too complicated. It's like taking your car in for a service. Is that they have to put a? You, you can't do it yourself anymore. You have to have a computer to fix it, um, to to stick it in into the you know the the plug to work out what's wrong with the car. And 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 I think that you know we it's a great shame where I think we have de-skilled our industry. And I think for for me when I when I. When I had that sort of, you know, experience of um, seeing nature, you know, supposedly affected by sort of licking this spray from uh, this this hare's fur, it really made me start to think, actually, what am I actually doing with this uh, tool, this blunt instrument that we were using in the field? And and I realised that I wasn't just spraying um, uh, the, the, the crop, I was spraying absolutely everything. And the difficulty is, is really understanding um, if that's a problem or not. And when we're all, so, all incredibly busy, um, you know, it, it, you either investigate it and you make up your own mind and informed decision about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but in my case, I just thought I just need to stop doing it. It also, I think it, 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 by stopping doing it and, and taking down, you know, going down a different uh, sort of regenerative path, wh- whichever way that might be, be it organic, be it no-till, be it whatever, be it min-till, is that it makes you, it makes you really look at your your business and what you're doing, and it makes you start to explore areas and take back control areas uh, that you've actually given away to other people. And you know, and I know this is not direct to farming, but as far as getting surveys done on the farm, is that the biggest joy is getting back those reports with all the different species on there, uh, which you can then go and Google, and you can actually start, then start looking out for them yourself is incredibly empowering and actually learning more about the nature on your farm and how it interacts with uh, what you're doing as a farmer because we have this thing about farming with the nature of course you know farming isn't really farming with the nature it's actually constantly destroying uh, nature um, but if we accept that we've got to do some kind of farming to, um, to to produce food is that we've got to understand the sort of impact that it's having on nature and how we can minimize it and actually really sort of learning about it and getting back in touch with it I want to I want to pick up on what you've you've both kind of hinted at you know the I guess the complexity of um, you know of ecosystems of of nature and how you how you work with that and how you you know build up knowledge of it and how it interacts with your farming operations. John, I, I, I sort of reading about your farm a little bit and you've got so many different things going on. How do you manage? that complexity how do you decide what to introduce um what not to is it kind of just trial by error have you got a philosophy behind it how, how do you kind of do it well first of all first of all the most important thing and we've talked about it is about communication um one of the reasons why i love social media love youtube 
uh, is because um, when we're trying different things on the farm, just putting up something that you've done, especially on YouTube, actually, I mean, you know, and, and then you just get all these fantastic comments. So I've learned so much from other farmers on my journey through social media. So um, that's a, 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 an incredibly important resource for me. I have to say, and it goes back to um, de-skilling ourselves, it took me quite a long time to change my head in the beginning, sort of, you know, the first sort of 10 years, because, and I, this is often quoted, but, you know, the biggest problem is yourself. It's actually you actually making the change in your head and actually really doing it properly rather than, uh, you know, continuing with that sort of, and I'm going to use the word conventional, but it's in the widest sense of the word, conventional sort of manner. But also, it's also trusting what you feel is right on the farm. And it's terribly unscientific. And, and sometimes I give really bland, appalling replies because actually I don't really have a huge amount of rigour behind some of the decisions that we make. Um, they just, you know, just through observation, you get a, a feeling that uh, that particular direction is the right way to, to, to go in. And if it's not, uh, and you, you fail, and you get a terrible yield, or you get a terrible weed problem, you know, that's just the best way to learn. So it's accepting you don't know everything, it's um, uh, learning by your mistakes and listening to other people. And, and that's pretty much my philosophy. I wish it was more rigorous. I'm also incredibly organised. Every Friday I sit down and I organise my next week and make sure that I've, I, I know exactly where we need to be. And, and then also we're, we're very organised as a team. Rich, you and I were, um, were, were talking before about finding the sweet spot on your farm, in your farming system, in terms of regenerative farming. Um, and I think that's kind of what John was sort of talking about a little bit as well is, you know, finding what works, what works for you, managing this complexity, a um, bit of trial and error. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea of finding your sweet spot and how, where you are with that, I guess? So in preparation for today, I got a couple of back issues of farming magazines and had a look through all the problems, the pig crisis and the BPS is going, if we, if we call that a crisis or not, perhaps it's an opportunity, the price of the inputs, everybody knows about that, people rushing around and accidents happening all the time, the price of wheat is dropping, yet the price of inputs are not, and are people going to plant wheat and everything, and, there's, and mental health being one of the major ones, uh, and, and many other sort of problems. And, and so how many of the, those, those problems or those issues can be solved by people saying, do you know what, I'm going to spend more money on variable costs? I don't think you can answer any of those issues with that unless you're talking about system change. And if your system is a more intensive system and you can make that stack up, that's great, fine for you. But if you can't make that work, then what's the alternative? Doing the, the status quo is not going to work with all the pressures from outside, you know, government policy, climate change, you know, uh, fossil fuels, all that kind of stuff, emissions. We all know about that. The rivers, our local river, the River Wise. Everybody says it's got a year till it's dead or two years till it's dead. You know, there's so many issues going on and agriculture is not completely to blame for all of those. Of course it's not. But if, if spending more money is not the answer and if doing the status quo is not the answer, then we've got to change something. And, and that's kind of and my sort of you know, three, four, five year journey. It, when I was, I was in the lambing shed, I was um, suckling lambs, got to about the third or fourth pen in a row at nine o'clock at night. And I thought, what, what am I doing? They're like, 
like the whole, you've got one job, your one job lamb is to get up and suckle. That's your job. And whether it was a trace element issue or a genetics issue, whatever, that, that doesn't matter. That was the start of me changing the system to lambing outside and then all the things with higher covers and less worming and uh, healthier animals and, and, and all that kind of stuff, the ecosystem we've already talked about. And I think, I think that um, that's, that's, that's that, they, they, all those kind of things have pushed me to where I am. But... There is always that slight caveat that unless you're going to go maybe cold turkey on nitrogen or cold turkey on chems or go full bore organic or whatever it is, then maybe you need to just scale back the inputs so your outputs don't fall off a cliff. And at some point you will find that sweet spot where where you're still making money, but you're improving your ecosystem at the same time. And there's a guy, well-known um, soil scientist, I think he's a Kiwi, lives in Canada, could be Australian, Joel Williams, and he talks about maybe taking 20% out a year over an eight or 10 year period. And then at that sort of seven or eight year point, you will end up with zero nitrogen input because you've been scaling it back. And actually, in legumes will fix nitrogen for free. That's what they do. And, and other microbes and other soil organisms help with, with, with all that sort of thing. Um, a friend of mine actually um, was talking to him the other day. He'd put some nitrogen on a field because he had a family discussion. That was a discussion between him and his dad. They were going to put nitrogen on this one field. Went out a month later, dug up some clover roots, and the nodules were pale. They were white. Well, if they're, if they're not pink or they're not coloured, then they're not f fixing nitrogen. So they had a crop there that would have done that job for free and capable of fixing you know, 100, 150 kilos of nitrogen per hectare per year, not doing anything. It's lazy because they put the product on. So... Do you know what I mean? You, when, when, you, when you start seeing all these little things and people talk about how are we going to um, monetize regenerative agriculture or holistic manager or whatever, it, it's a personal choice. And if you're not interested, that's absolutely fine. But when you start looking at all these little things, and I said about my, my swallows and John's talked about his ecosystem as well, you start to see the, you know, the pennies add up and then, and then you get to a point where it, where it, does, it does work, I think. And, and right now, obviously, like like you said, you know, farming as the world is is, is facing a lot of crises, um, and particularly in, in terms of farming, you know, obviously very high input costs. Where does your your current systems, you know, where do they place you right now to be able to deal with those? Rich, do you want to go first? We basically don't use any fertilizer. I've got a couple of bags of urea in the shed, and and I. I uh, have a have a, a I had I had a plan to uh, make a um, a liquid spray on nitrogen, but actually we've got quite a lot of clover and I think we've got our stocking rate somewhere near right. Nitrogen is not a limiting factor. A limiting factor is 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 water rainfall. So we need to build root 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 mass and and um, protect our soil with with taller covers and yeah trample a little bit of grass maybe uh, in order to retain the, the rain we do get it's, it's everywhere is very dry at the moment so um, yeah probably should just sell that nitrogen and make make money on it because I would if I did um, yeah you probably would probably make quite a bit now um, John what about you do you feel like your your farm has got to a point where it's really just singing you know going going really well and able to cope with with things like um high input costs and and drought conditions and things like that um i mean i would say that you know after doing this for 20 years i'm getting to a point where i'm feeling much happier about how things are going um because it's a very steep learning curve it's very interesting to hear rich say 
you know, just sort of tweak one or two things because with the there's a plus and a minus side to this, but with the organic thing, once you sign up, you, you, you're, the whole thing changes overnight. And so you're not changing one or two little things. You have to change everything. Uh, that's a good thing because it has to put you in a different mindset, but actually it's quite risky. Um, and so possibly that's why um, organic farms, uh, you know, do come and go. Uh, and those of us who, who, who stick at it, uh, because actually we've, we've learned a huge amount from our mistakes and after about 20 years, you're, you're getting your, your system right. So, yeah, I would say that it is looking pretty good at the moment. I'm pretty happy the way things are going. Um, I, we're obviously protected from, you know, the sort of increase in input um, prices because we don't use any. The only input we use really is, is seed. Um, and so... Yes, I, I, as far as being in control of your business is concerned, um, I think the, the model is, is pretty much up there at times like this. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. What, what about um, the fact that, you know, as part of those models, you've got a very, very mixed system, John, you especially, and I know you're, you're doing things like you're experimenting with um, novel crops like chia seeds and lentils. Um, does that... Does that kind of spread the risk further or does it kind of make it quite tricky, actually, to, to manage all those different things in a way that makes economic sense? Because you've got to market all those things as well, haven't you? Absolutely. It, and, and it does make it it doesn't make it more tricky, but it also makes it incredible fun as well. I mean, it's just growing novel crops is really fantastic. Um, it, it, you don't grow too many too many hectares uh, too early, uh, but it's, it's quite a le- steep learning curve. But but going back to the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the risks and the problems at the moment uh, and, and, and linking that with having a diverse cropping system is that, you know, our biggest problem is weather. And, you know, we've had a 160 millimetres since the 1st of January, uh, going uh, nearly, nearly getting to Wales yesterday. It was incredible to see actually how scorched the, you know, the land was even, you know, going further west when you, you guys you normally get a, a lot more rain than we do but if you're if you're growing lots of different crops actually you're building more resilience into your system because uh you're not putting all your eggs in one basket and uh the big big game changer for me was harvest 2012 uh where i was still thinking like a conventional farmer we had a huge amount of winter wheat in the ground a, a, a variety called warrior which broke down to yellow rust we got chocolate spot on our beans and we were growing barley as well and that got something i can't re- remember what it was but it yielded appallingly and uh, from that year on, we built in a huge amount of complexity to deal with those sort of um, extreme weather events, really, to be quite honest, uh, or, or um, you know, putting too many eggs in, into one basket. But it does make management more difficult. Uh, but it, as I say, it makes it more fun. And that's what keeps, um, keeps us all getting up in the morning, just doing something different. Gosh, you know, every 12 months and you're putting three different tree crops in the ground and just watch them grow year after year. How dull can that be? <laughs> there's well there's a lot of learning isn't there in what you're talking about and like you said creativity which I, I love the idea of that I don't think I've ever heard a farmer say farming can be creative what a lovely thing I think the creativity is something we don't we don't kind of talk about enough but actually it's part of being human isn't it so um there's something really nice about that um what what are you trying to still figure out both of you because you know like we've just established it is very much a learning curve and it is trial and error and you've got to find that sweet spot rich is there anything you're kind of working on at the moment that you're sort of really trying to figure out i am not 
probably the best planned person that 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 that, that you might meet. And I need to, like the whole John said about planning on planning next week on a Friday is fantastic. And I do sort of do that, but not as well as I should. I think holistic management. I've 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 I'm a bit eighty twenty. That's my problem. So I will. I am slightly lazy. I mean, I'll move electric fences all day and I don't, you know shear sheep all day or whatever. And might not be very fast, but I don't mind working. But but I, I probably don't put enough effort in in the right places. And and so although I've read the book, uh, Anna Savory's book of holistic management, and I understand all the principles and everything, I probably haven't followed it through and done the planning. So um, it, I need to I need to do do sort of more of that to set set me up to to to, to go forward in a in a better way. And we do need to diversify a little bit more. Um, it's just, I, I kind of, ha I hate myself for saying it, but, but I think, well, we can, we can grow all sorts of things. We, we just put an agroforestry project in. We've got, we've got chestnuts, we've got hazelnuts, we've got apples. Squirrels might be a problem for, for the nuts, but the fruit, we, we can do that. But then we're only going to have a very small amount and, you know, how do I sell them? And so, I, I, you know, you stick, a, you stick a, a problem in the way, whereas if we had, you know, hundreds of tons, it would be kind of easier. So, so. We, we just need to, I think we need, need, I need to get a bit better at planning and then, and then, and then kind of the more you do, the more you know you can do. And, and it, it, it's sort of, like I said before, it's a snowball and it will, it will roll. Mm, yeah, nice. I love the idea of your agroforestry project as well. Um, John, is there anything you're sort of still tweaking at this point? Well, actually, I, I was completely inspired by Alice uh, when we, she started direct selling all our, our lambs and, you know, she, she direct sold 1200 lambs last year. And, and she's on course to do um, uh, all the lambs this year. Um, and it made me, we, we'd been, we, Alice and I used to make our, our own organic flour um, when our kids were very small. God knows why we started that when we had small kids. So we gave it up pretty quickly because we, we got to the stage where we were about to scale up, but we were just so busy, we, something had to give. But actually, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of going back to um, doing that um, but also, you know, just going, I talked earlier about sort of going more niche is that, you know, we, there's an opportunity to dehull our spelt. There's an opportunity to uh, dehusk our oats and to roll them. There's an opportunity to uh, mill our own heritage wheat blend or, or just, you know, just normal willing, milling wheat blends. And so we're, we're really looking at putting in a system of actually adding value to the crop's uh, that we grow on the farm already. And, and as, as I say, if we can process some of these novel crops as well and, and sell them direct from the farm, uh, you know, that's uh, something that we're really interested in at the moment. And that's what we're sort of driving towards. Um, and, and, and it also it makes it more exciting, of course, because you're interacting much more directly with the customer. Um, I've just got to try and persuade Alice to take on the sales job of that because she's a Rottweiler when it comes to selling stuff. And uh, I'm a bit of a pushover. <laughs> We all need a Rottweiler for selling, I think, don't we? <laughs> um, so now I wanted to um, kind of open the floor a bit to you both now to see whether there was any any questions you both had for each other. Because, I mean, you're, you're obviously you're operating quite different systems in different parts of the country. Um, so obviously not everything is applicable. But I'm guessing, you know, John has maybe, um, you know, more of a specialism in, in cropping and um, and Rich, you have more of a specialism in livestock. So I'm wondering whether there's anything you can learn off each other. Oh, John's raising his hand. Yes. <laughs> I was um, 
really inspired Rich. And, you know, I should know all about this, uh, but I don't. You know, um, the, when you were talking about moving your cattle on and, and actually um, solving the, the uh, sort of a fly problem uh, because they were moving on to the next bit because, uh, you know, uh, so they're out of the way of the hatching flies, is that actually we do seem to have a real problem with our sheep with fly strike. And I thought it was maybe because, you know, we weren't spraying insecticides and actually maybe we got more flies, but actually it's probably something to do with our grazing because, you know, we've got a new shepherd now and uh, I know you met him yesterday. Um, and, and I'm just wondering if, if we need to be on a more of a mob grazing system uh, with our sheep so we actually make sure that they move, Maybe that's what's happening is that, you know, they are staying, staying on their pastures for too long and, and, and their, their, their amounts to those sort of hatching flies. I just wanted to know what your comment was and have you, what have you done with your sheep? If you're mob grazing your cattle, are you mob grazing your sheep and what effect does that have on, on, on sheep health and insects and that kind of thing? Uh, you certainly, yeah. Uh, so um, we, we, do, we do mob graze the, the sheep and rotate them around. They would be on generally two-day moves, sometimes sometimes weekly if it if it has to be but generally sort of two to three days that would be our main chemical use on the farm is is poor on chemicals and of course they're they're not very good for soil so we need to try and maybe not stop it in the certain in the cert so in the in the short term because of animal welfare but um there, there's I th i've read about a, a project in new zealand where and, and certainly i think matt smith in this in cornwall is trying to do the same and but but there there is a, a, a genetic predisposition for some animals to get fly struck and not others and i've i've probably seen it in the past and not listened to my own kind of inner voice if you like and and i had two ewes that had it last year and I treated them and, 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 and got them back fine and kept them. But those ewes got fly struck in May. Before anything else, the ones that already had last year got fly struck again. Well, I've, I've culled them out there and they're gone now. And I, I think that there, there is work going on to try and see some genetic street lines of sheep will be more predisposed to get fly strike than others. Now, I'm not saying it's a, it's a cure-all, but I think if you can put those animals under a little bit of pressure, as well as all the other things like healthy ecosystem and moving them around and mob grazing, that sort of stuff, any that get fly struck and maybe give them a chance. Although I'm not saying you need to have them, you obviously have to keep an eye on them and you don't want them to get, get, get cause any welfare issues. But you, I think you have to put those animals under a little bit of pressure in the first few that get, get, get a problem. You need those genetics out of your flock. Uh, same with the cattle, you know, if, if, if there's an animal that keeps getting poorly, it keeps getting a pink eye or it looks a bit a bit poorer than the others, that's the one that has to go because that's the poorer genetics. And we're only trying to mimic nature and, and, and what would happen, and it gets talked about probably maybe even too much, but what would happen with the bison on the plains or in the Serengeti or whatever. And we need to be the wolf. And maybe the flies are helping us to be the wolf to, to show us which are the poorer animals and the poorer genetics to get them out of our flocks. Um, because we need we need to get away from using that those chemicals and the wormers and all that sort of stuff, but it's it's not like with the nitrogen. It's quite difficult to just turn it off. Um, I've yeah. written notes, Rich. Thank you so much, <laughs> um, Rich. That was fascinating. Thank you. Do you have anything you'd like to ask ask John at all? Well, it's funny you should say that because this agroforestry project. I, I again, Will Evans, you know podcast hero that he is he did two podcasts the ones where he spoke to george young and and then george sly they were planting trees on their farms and, and, and i thought you know it's a really cool thing to do 
Woodland Trust were paying for it, which is which is quite nice. And so I came up with this with this project. I sent it through, and I got 100% approval from from uh, for the grant from the Woodland Trust. Uh, but literally just before I sort of was about ready to press go and and and, and accept it. I had a bit of a wobble, so I, I messaged John because he had been talking about, about planted trees on either his YouTube channel, I think that was where I saw it, uh, and, and I thought, well, I, you know, here's somebody who's done it and doing it and, and that sort of thing, and, I, and, and, and he, he said, just do it, you know, you just, just plant the trees, and if it really goes wrong after 12, 10, whatever, 15 years, if you really have to, you can take them out. But uh, most of my regrets are things that I've not done and things that I, rather than things I've actually done. And so we planted the trees and yeah, some of them have suffered a bit in the dry weather. But um, I was really grateful for that. You know, a bit of advice was just just do it, just plant the trees. And uh, for, for me, we've got the apples and the, and the chestnuts and the, and the hazelnuts, so there's fruit there. We've got willow and poplar in, in, in the sort of wetter part of the field. So there's, um, there's biomass opportunity, there's firewood. There's browsing trees, which is what they're really planted for. We've got shade and shelter for, for the livestock and then for the um, all the invertebrates and the small mammals and, and that sort of thing that will live in the in the sort of three meter corridors we, we, we're creating. And and hopefully maybe in, in t some time in 20 years time, maybe we can we can coppice some of the chestnuts and take some of the stakes out to use for fencing stakes rather than having creosote treated fencing stakes. So so like. I know I've taken half an acre and have a 12 acre field and I've had people to visit and look at it and oh, you've lost that grazing there. Well, it's half an acre. It's like a hundred pounds worth of grazing for the year if you want to go and rent it somewhere else. But the gains that we can bring to the farm will far exceed that hundred pounds of loss of lost grass. And I think it's, um, I was just really grateful for that support that, that John gave. And I'm really interested in the novel crops thing. I just wonder if I can make it work on a, on a sort of fairly small sort of 300 acre farm in, in the north of Herefordshire really. I, I think it was really interesting, Rich, uh, what you said there, because actually right at the very beginning, you said something about, um, of course, we planted these sort of, you know, fruit and nuts and whatever, and, and, and I'm not sure how we're going to be able to sell those. And is it uh, big enough to, it, you know, if it was 100 tons, it would be easy. And actually, what you've just done is you've just gone through all the fantastic reasons why you would put in agroforestry. And actually, uh, none, none of them really actually included selling anything. So actually, it's just a win-win. It's a win-win situation. The fact is, if you don't manage to sell anything from it, you've got that massive list of benefits that you just read out. So if you, if you then, you know, manage to, you know, get something to sell as well, you know, happy days. You know, there's nothing to lose. Guys, thank you. This is been absolutely fascinating and a real joy of a podcast episode I think um, so thank you both for coming on um, John I just wanted to leave the final word with you um, being the seasoned uh, agro ecological farmer that you are <laughs> and I just wanted to ask you is there anything that you wish you had known if you were to go back in time go back 25 odd years is there anything you know that you wish you'd known back then about how to get your farm working the way it is now? That's a very interesting question and quite a difficult one to answer. I think um, what what I probably wish I'd known is actually how much I, as a person, would be a limiting factor on actually. Um, how I, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think, and we've said it before, but it, it, is, it is about changing your head. And, you know, I think that if, you are, if you're wanting to make change, you've got to find yourself a space 
um, where you are able to um, express um, feelings and opinions and people are going to engage with it rather than tell you no. And it's quite a difficult place to find uh, because we find ourselves in, in alleys in our, our working lives. And I don't really have the answer to that. Um, but having a fantastic family around you, um, having a great team uh, who you can communicate with is incredibly important. So um, sort of coming rather than a sort of a rambling way around to it is actually just put trust and communicate with the people that you have around you uh, because it makes any, trend, any change that you make on the farm so much easier to, to make and to bear the, the, the problems that might come from, from making those changes. It's very difficult to divorce yourself from um, your neighbour's opinion, you know, social media's opinion, and actually give yourself the, um, the confidence to be able to do it. And it comes back to uh, my point about giving, uh, being confident as business people and as agronomists as, and as farmers. And, and it's so important to have that confidence. Do you know, I think that's a really great point to end on. And I, I feel like almost any time in life, we need to find our tribe, don't we, in order to feel kind of supported and encouraged forwards in what we're doing. So I think that's a great, a great lesson or tip for anyone listening who wants to get into regenerative farming more is go out there and network with like-minded people because there are increasingly a lot of them out there um so thank you both very much thank you to jez john and rich that's it for this week's podcast but we'll be covering more on regenerative agriculture next month when we dig into soils make sure you pick up your copy of the latest farmer's guardian out today where we talk about welsh government's mvz regulations and the risk that they pose to milk production we're also looking at why consumers believe buying local is the most sustainable option and a look back at the pig crisis of the 1990s in the context of the challenges that the industry faces today. We'll be back with another episode next week, so make sure you hit that subscribe button. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now. Hold up. 